Our scripture reading this afternoon will begin in the book of Numbers, part of the Law of Moses, Numbers 14. Numbers 14, we'll read verses 1 through 25. Then all the congregation, this is after the uh, spies returned from spying out the land of Canaan and decided that it was too hard for them to take. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people." For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that He swore to give to them that He has killed them in the wilderness. And now please, Let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as, all the earth, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I, get, that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. 
Now since the Amalekites and Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. So far from the book of Numbers, we'll also turn to the New Testament, to the book of Romans. I should mention the uh, theme that holds these readings together is the glory of God's name, God's uh, working for his own name. You saw that there in Numbers 14. And we'll see it again in Romans. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 26. Here the Apostle Paul, speaking of the Jews who have apostatized, have not believed in the Messiah, the Apostle Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, Then why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So far from Romans 9, we'll also turn to Romans 11, just a few verses from that chapter verses 33 through 36. 
Paul concludes his argument with these words, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of the Christian faith and a confession adopted by this church. We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 47. It's on page 561 of your books of praise if you wish to follow along. This is dealing uh, with the Lord's Prayer. There, The question is, what is the first petition? That is of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. That is, grant us first of all that we may rightly know you and sanctify, glorify, and praise you in all your works in which shine forth your almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. Grant us also that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're continuing our series in the Lord's Prayer. And as we do that, we, we want to keep in mind our purpose for this study. It's not just an academic exercise, you know, studying a prayer that, that Jesus taught long ago. Uh, it's coming from the awareness that, as we saw a couple weeks ago, prayer is the most important part of the Christian life. It's important not just as a, a measure of our vitality, Uh, Your prayer life is a measure of your vitality. It shows how alive you are before God. But it's important also because it's the means by which God works in us the transformation, the spiritual renewal that we long for, especially as we finish the Ten Commandments and we realize how how far we have to go, how how much more we could be walking in freedom. We recognize we need the Spirit and, and the power of God for that. And prayer is the means by which we access that. And so prayer is the way we come before God, the way that we meet with Him, and also how we receive His promise and the wisdom uh, that we need from Him. So as we saw before, uh, we're we're taking our cue here from the, the question the disciples asked the Lord Jesus themselves when they saw the Lord Jesus spending hours in prayer and seeming to, to gain a vitality and a life from that time in prayer. The disciples came to Him and, and asked Him, would you teach us, Lord, to pray? That's, that's going to be our request as well before God. Would you teach us to pray? And so it's, it's for that reason we've devoted these afternoon services to working our way through the prayer that Jesus then taught them in response to that request. And we saw last week that prayer begins with calling upon God as our Father in heaven. We observe that uh, true Christian prayer before God is, is prayer to a Father, not to a distant deity, not to a God figure, but to our Heavenly Father who knows us, who loves us, who's adopted us in Christ. Well, now we come to the first petition then, which is, Hallowed be your name. Now, this prayer is simultaneously uh, perhaps the most familiar and well-known petition of the Lord's Prayer, and also probably the most obscure and unknown. 
What do I mean? Well, it's most familiar and well-known simply because virtually everyone in the English-speaking world has heard these words. Uh, Hallowed be your name. Uh, Almost everyone has heard it recited at some point in their lives. But it's also most obscure and unknown because probably very few people in our culture, perhaps even among us, understand what these words mean. The word hallow uh, has, uh, it's a word that has fallen into disuse in the English language. Nobody says hallow anymore, except perhaps in in certain uh, phrases that have also come from ancient times, like uh, walking down hallowed halls. Uh, We use some of these old uh, phrases. Uh, And even more, the idea of of a name, a name being hallowed, uh, whatever that means, is equally mysterious uh, to our culture. And that's where we want to start then as we think about this petition is just understanding what does this petition actually mean. And the word hallowed simply means to to be holy or to be made holy uh, or sometimes to be uh, seen or recognized as holy. It's the exact same word in the Greek Bible that you find in many other places that everywhere else is translated as sanctify, uh, which means to make holy. The only reason our English Bibles translate every other recurrence of this word as sanctify and here in the Lord's Prayer translate it as as hallowed uh, is because nobody wants to touch the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We we learned that from the King James Version. It says hallowed, and so nobody nobody changes that, and that's why our translations still say uh, hallowed. Uh, But the word simply means to be made holy or be regarded as holy. Now, the word holy, in turn, perhaps that word too has fallen into disuse, Uh, The word holy simply means to be set apart, uh, something that is not to be profaned, not to be mixed with that which is common, but regarded as worthy of respect and honor and and special treatment. That's that's holy. Now, perhaps the the reason that this word hallowed uh, and, and even the word holy have fallen into disuse is precisely because in our secular and modern and then postmodern culture, very little is still regarded as holy. Marriage used to be holy. Now it's in our culture regarded as little more than a piece of paper, a contract that you can break as quickly as you make it. Sex used to be holy. Now it's a recreational pastime. It doesn't have to mean anything. Our bodies used to be holy. Now we can do whatever we want to them, uh, as long as we are not hurting others. Indeed, human life, which used to be regarded as sacred and holy, is now one more commodity on which we can experiment and uh, or dispose of as we please. You think of designer babies genetically modified to be the the so-called perfect baby, uh, or fertility treatments that create dozens of embryos in order to uh, in order to only raise one of them and then destroy all of the others, human life is no longer holy. And so we might make a, a couple of observations here. One um, we should pay attention to is that the, the evolution of our language uh, in many ref- ways reflects changes in our culture, something we often overlook. The way we speak, the words we use, reflects the values uh, of our culture. Uh, but that aside... In regards to that which is holy, something else we should observe here is if the name of God is not holy, then in time, eventually, nothing will be holy. 
That then brings us to the uh, second question regarding the meaning of this prayer. Uh, So the first question was, what does it mean for something to be holy or hallowed? Uh, The second question is, what do we mean when we pray for God's name to be hallowed? What name are we referring to, and why does it matter that it would be regarded as holy? Well, Scripture uses many different names for the Lord, uh, for God. You think of the word God, Lord, uh, Yahweh, or Jehovah, uh, the covenant name of God used in the Old Testament, uh, and certainly there are, are others In this prayer, though, we're not referring to any one particular name of God. We're actually referring to God himself. When we speak of his name, it means we're speaking of of him, uh, and in particular, the knowledge of him among mankind. The word name, in other words, is synonymous with reputation. May your reputation or the honor that you possess among the, the nations, may that be regarded as holy. We, use, we actually use the word name in a similar way even in our own uh, contemporary English. We speak of someone having a good name or having a bad name. Uh, or We speak of ruining someone's name. Uh, we're just talking about their, their reputation. How are they thought of by, by others? Well, that's what we're praying for in this petition as well. We're praying that God would be honored as holy among all the peoples of the world that he would be honored, that he would be regarded as supreme, that he would be known and feared as the only true God. That's what this prayer is all about. That then brings us to the main point on which we want to spend most of our time this afternoon, the priority of this prayer. And we're asking Jesus to teach us to pray, and this is where Jesus would have us start. Is this where you would have started? If you were to design the model prayer for the Christian life, is this where you would have begun? Is this what you typically pray about? Well, Jesus is teaching us then to begin our prayers by setting aside all of the concerns that we have. We we come to God with many concerns. Jesus teaches us, set those aside. Put them on the back burner for a moment and begin your prayer by thinking of God's concerns. And the highest among those, the highest of God's concerns, is the rightful, honoring, reverencing, valuing, and sanctifying of the name of God. Have we taken that to heart? Do we live with an awareness that that this is God's highest concern, the honor due His name, that God cares about that more than He cares about anything else? What I want to argue this afternoon is that when that realization takes a hold of us, when we see that as true and and we take it to heart, it will radically transform the way that we pray. This is exactly why the Lord Jesus taught us to start your prayers here. When we understand this and we take it to heart, uh, it will shape both the way that we pray and also the things that we pray for and about. To think of a few examples, consider some of the prayers of the Old Testament. And the saints before God who stood, uh, who stood before God in prayer during those major turning points in history, uh, in response to whose prayers God acted and God delivered, uh, this is where they also began. 
You might think of Moses, for example. We read earlier from Numbers 14, which describes the moment that the spies came back from the land uh, and declared that this land is too hard to take. The people are too strong. The walls are too high. Uh, there's giants that walk the land. And then the people of Israel despaired and, and said, would that we had uh, just died in the wilderness, or, or maybe we should go back to, to Egypt. Uh, we read how God responded to that in great anger, even saying to Moses, let me just wipe these people out and start with a new, a new people. And what does Moses do? Well, Moses falls on his face before the Lord in prayer and pleads with God to show mercy to the people. And in that prayer, did you notice the reason that Moses set before the Lord, the reason why the Lord should not kill the people of Israel? It says, Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. Your cloud stands over them. You go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring them into this land that He swore to give them. It's for that reason that he has killed them in the wilderness. Now think about that argument. Moses pleaded before the Lord to spare the lives of God's people, not because the people were worthy, not because the people were really nice people, uh, not because Moses didn't think it would be fair for God to kill these many thousands of people. Moses' argument that he brings before the Lord is the sake of your name. For your name, the Egyptians will hear about it. These people in the land will hear about it. Uh, his argument he lays before God is that if God were to destroy the people now, after all that he would done with uh, for them, he would destroy the name that he had built for himself thus far. You see, Moses recognized something that the ten unbelieving spies failed to recognize when they came back from the land. Uh, they, they saw a, a battle-hardened people. They saw big walls and big armies. What they didn't see, which Moses tells us elsewhere in, in Numbers, what they didn't see is that the hearts of the people were melting with fear. The people were terrified of, of the people of Israel. They were, uh, it says their hearts melted like butter uh, when they saw that the people of Israel were gathering near their land. Moses recognized that, and Moses recognized that is the direct result of what God had done in Egypt. They saw what God had done in Egypt. They saw the name of the Lord, and they feared the Lord. And Moses, when he brings this before God, says, this is something worth fighting for. This is something that we, we, we do not want to lose. Uh, he, says if, he says to God, in effect, if you destroy the people now, uh, then, the, then the people are, are going are gonna to look at that and say, well, I guess, I guess God wasn't among them. And maybe it was just a coincidence that there were these ten plagues uh, in Egypt. Or, or maybe God is powerful, but not as powerful as our gods. And that's Moses' prayer before God. God, think of your name. And you might be thinking, I know this thought has crossed my mind. Uh, you might be thinking, well, this is very clever of Moses, isn't it? Um, he, he, of course, he wanted to s save their lives, but he, uh, instead of, of pleading for their life, he, he instead appeals to something that God would care about. But, but I don't think that's true. If you think of Moses' circumstances, uh, Moses was just as angry with the people of Israel as God was. And, and the people of Israel were, were planning to dispose of Moses. 
They didn't just say, let's go back to Egypt. They said, let's find some new leaders and go back to Egypt. It's hard to imagine that Moses was just filled with compassion uh, for the people of Israel at that point. No, it, it makes more sense to understand Moses had himself had come to see and to know the glory of the Lord. Moses himself had come to recognize this matters more than anything else. And so Moses here, he's praying from his heart. He's learned that the glory of God's name is something worth praying for. And Moses is far from alone among the Old Testament saints in praying for this. You might mention others. Joshua, for example, prayed in this way when the Israelites fell in battle at Ai. Uh, Joshua doesn't just pray uh, to deliver the people. He prays for God to defend his name because the people in Ai are going to think our gods were stronger than the Lord. Daniel prayed this way from the palace of Darius in Babylon when he prayed for the restoration of of, uh, the city of Jerusalem. says Daniel 9, verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And you think of many other examples. You might think of the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 54, verse 1, we sang it earlier. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Or that, most, uh, that, that most famous Psalm, uh, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What matters the most to God? It's the glory of his name. What you discover when you search the word of God, Old Testament and New, is that God acts and God delivers, not because we are great, wonderful people, but because he has a name that's worth fighting for. He made us for his glory, says Isaiah in Isaiah 43, verse 7. He created us to be image bearers of him on this earth for his glory so that the world would see and we would see in each other his wisdom, goodness, and power. He punishes sin for the glory of his name. He makes clear to us, as he did to Moses, that he is a just God, a God who by no means will clear the guilty. He does this for his own name's sake. And he also saves us. He saves us for his own name's sake. Now, you can read about this uh, later on. Uh, we didn't have time for this reading uh, this afternoon, but if you have evening devotions still coming up, uh, you might choose Ezekiel 20. Uh, and if you, if you do, listen for the refrain that you hear in that chapter. Over and over and over, God says in relation to all that he did for his people, he says, I did this for the sake of my name. Uh, whether it's rescuing the people of Israel or sparing them when they broke his commandments in the wilderness or when they rebelled against him on the borders of, 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 of the promised land. Uh, and again, when they chased after foreign gods in their own land, he, he says over and over, I acted for the sake of my name in all that I did for my people. Uh, he also promises, us, promises them in that chapter that even after judgment, uh, he will bring them back. And he says, when I do then you will know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. We need to take to heart that this really is God's chief concern. In all that God does, He acts for His own name's sake. And when we, when we recognize that, take that to heart, it will radically reshape and transform our prayers. 
And you see this as well in the New Testament. It's something worth highlighting, particularly in our culture, where uh, if you were to ask, what is the greatest good in our culture, as people see it, uh, I think the answer would be human happiness. In our culture, we, we cherish, we love, we most highly esteem, above all things, human happiness. And we see human suffering as the greatest uh, imaginable evil, the greatest evil that we should avoid. And so people sometimes ask the question, you know, if God is all-powerful, and God could change human hearts, which He can, uh, th- then why does God send anyone to hell? And why doesn't God save everybody since He can? Well, we ask that question because we assume that these are God's supreme values as well. Human happiness as the greatest good, human suffering as the greatest evil. And judged by that standard, what good could ever come from sending someone eternally to hell? But perhaps we ought to question whether those are God's supreme values. Uh, God does delight to do good, it's true, to people. God does not delight in the death of the wicked, says Ezekiel elsewhere. He he, he desires that they would repent and be saved. And yet there is something that God values and esteems even more highly than our happiness and and our pleasure. God esteems uh, the sanctity of His name. It's what what, what God teaches the Apostle Paul uh, and and the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 9. Uh, God says of Pharaoh, for example, whom God judged, God sent to the bottom of the Red Sea where Pharaoh perished, God says, for this very purpose I raised you up. For this purpose, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. There God says, I have a higher, I have a higher good. I'm serving a higher purpose uh, than, than uh, this salvation of Pharaoh. Understand this well then, brothers and sisters. God is not serving our ideals. Uh, and either, either his value system is skewed or ours is. And I would submit to you that not only as creatures, uh, but, uh, but even more as sinners, we might do well to give good consideration to, to, the, to the possibility that our perspective might be the one that is skewed and limited. And this highest ideal, then, of God's, the glory of His name, it's directed not only to the judgment of some, but it's also directed to the salvation of others. It is the reason and the cause for which God saves some and condemns others. Uh, Romans 9, verse 22, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for His glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Why does God, according to, to Romans 9.22, why does God condemn some? To show his wrath, to make known his power. Why does God save others? To show the riches of his glory for those on whom he shows mercy through the cross of Christ. Those are God's value system. That's God's value system. Now, how will, we, how will we respond to that? Do we uh, stand up against God and say, God, you need to get your values straight. You need to esteem more highly our happiness, our salvation. Uh, you need to care more about our suffering. Or do we recognize and, and, and consider perhaps it is us? Perhaps we have need of getting our values in order. Now, if it's any help to you, I don't think this is entirely foreign to us either. 
Although our values may be skewed and misplaced, we do understand at some level that, that uh, the, the honor of those who are worthy of honor is worth some measure of discomfort uh, and even perhaps uh, of human life. In the Arlington National Seminary, sorry for the American analogy, uh, you can visit the tomb of the unknown soldier. And it's dedicated to honoring the sacrifice of all those soldiers who've fallen uh, in battle and were never identified. And that tomb is guarded night and day, uh, rain or sleet or thunder, by an armed member of the U.S. Marine Corps who will give his life, if necessary, to defend the sanctity of that tomb. So some things are still holy. And we see there perhaps a small parable of, of exactly what we're talking about. We recognize that the honor due to the name of these fallen soldiers is worthy of the suffering endured by those who guard the tomb, not to mention, of course, the uh, immense tax bill uh, we pay for, for guarding that tomb. Well, if that's true of us, sinful men, whose honor is limited, uh, how much more is it not true of the infinitely majestic, holy, and glorious God who created us for His glory? It is said, I don't know who first said it, uh, but it is said that perhaps the greatest unpaid bill uh, in the world is the glory due to God's name. There's, There's something that ought to be paid there and hasn't been paid given that it is God who made us for His glory, who gives us our every breath and our every heartbeat so that we would give Him glory, who shows His kindness to us in a thousand other ways, uh, and that we, the the, the pinnacle of God's creation, uh, fail to pay Him the honor and love and adoration that's worthy of His name, uh, that is a great unpaid bill. And so that's why uh, Paul, Paul ends the argument uh, that he makes in Romans 9. He ends it uh, with, with Romans 11.33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. It's what God said to Moses long ago. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Paul says, from, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's worthy. He is worthy of that glory. So then, how does this change our prayers? When we've taken to heart that this is God's supreme value, it it will radically transform and reshape the way we pray. For one thing, how often do we begin our prayers here? It's good, of course, that we cast all our anxieties on God, whatever those anxieties might be. I'm not in any way suggesting that, that we shouldn't. But when we come to God in prayer, do we stop? Do we ponder? Do we reflect and recognize that before everything else, my highest concern ought to be the glory of God's name? My concerns need to be brought into line with God's concerns. And that God is rightly, justly, appropriately, we might say thankfully, Um, concerned for the honor and sanctity of his name. Though we might not esteem it, we should give thanks to God that he nonetheless does because it is worthy of that esteem. That's why this prayer begins here. When we learn to love the name of the Lord as Moses did, as Joshua did, as Daniel did, as Paul did, then it radically reshapes the rest of our prayer. 
That's what you see in the Lord's Prayer as well. If you were to break up uh, the, the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer uh, into, into categories, I do this with the catechism student, uh, students, I break the, the Lord's Prayer into categories uh, and, and ask, uh, into which category uh, do, do most of my requests fall? Do you think, of what are the things I pray for most often? And probably most of our requests, this, this turns out to be the case every time with uh, the catechism students, most of our requests fall under the fourth petition. And we pray, for, uh, we pray for food, we pray for health, we pray for strength, we pray for help with our homework, uh, we pray for income, we pray for a job. Uh, all of these, these tend to fall under the, they, they fall under that category of the fourth commandment uh, referring to all of our earthly needs. And if you were to rate them now, uh, probably the second highest, uh, the second most filled category would be the fifth petition, praying for forgiveness for our sins. Uh, thankfully, that's something that uh, we all do. Uh, or perhaps even the sixth, seeking God's help with temptations, uh, encompassing all of our prayers with, for, for wisdom and discernment. All of these you notice in the second half of the Lord's Prayer. Our stuff, to say it crudely, our stuff, our forgiveness, our, our, our temptations. We pray a lot about ourselves. But these are not where the Lord's Prayer begins. And all too often, the first three petitions are the least three, uh, least often prayed petitions of the Lord's Prayer, at least in our, in our day-to-day lives. Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. We so easily overlook those petitions. But the Lord Jesus put them here at the beginning of, of, of this prayer so that we would stop, put our concerns on hold for a moment to reorient ourselves, to bring our concerns into line with God's concerns so that we, by God's grace, would learn to, to, to not be overwhelmed, uh, consumed with, uh, obsessed with our concerns, but rather that we would learn to see ourselves as part of God's story. That, that we would see that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And here's the beauty of that. If we allow ourselves to be caught up into God's concerns, if we take the, the, the time to let God's concerns weigh upon our hearts until they reach a point where they truly matter to us, it brings our whole lives into perspective. My needs, uh, my needs for daily bread, my need for forgiveness, my need for help with temptation, uh, those are real needs. But, but, uh, but God's world does not revolve around my needs, and nor should mine either. My world should not revolve around my own needs. By God's grace, I'm part of something much bigger than myself, a world in which God is working to bring honor to his name where God is teaching people, teaching me to know him, to love him, to fear him, to adore him for all his glory and his wisdom and his beauty and his power. I'm part of his kingdom. By his grace, he's brought me into his kingdom by God's blood. And this matters a whole lot more than all of my needs. Uh, all, of, uh, all of God's concerns are so much greater than my concerns. And my concerns are really, when, when, you, when you see it in light of that, my concerns are really a part of this larger concern. So I'm praying for my needs, my, my forgiveness, my temptations, because I want to be part of the glory of God's name, the building of God's kingdom, and the doing of God's will. 
I want to see the nations being drawn to Him in obedience. I want to see His will being done in this world, especially in this broken, sinful, perverse world. May it be that God's will would be done. I want to see uh, His kingdom established here. That's my heart's desire. And then you think, what was it that I, that I came here to pray about? Oh, yes, yes, my, my own needs as well. God, if you would also grant me what I need to serve you, uh, the daily bread that I need, the clothing, the shelter that I need, and, and your forgiveness for my sins and your help with my temptations, then if you do this, Lord, I will use the time that you give me to, to give my life to your kingdom for the glory of your name. And brothers and sisters, and understand that it's Jesus' mercy, it's Jesus' mercy that he sets before us in the Lord's Prayer, not our, our concerns first, but God's. He invites us up into God's concerns because it's there that we finally get to see our own lives with a sense of perspective. We get to find the, the contentment and peace as well that however God should choose to answer my concerns, whether he gives me the bread I need or doesn't, even so, I can still be a part of the glory of his name and his kingdom and his will. You can say with the saints, as they've said for all the centuries, whether in life or death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so when you pray, take the time, likewise, to be caught up into God's concerns. And by God's grace, you'll find your life also and your prayers enriched, filled with the Spirit and with God's power. You'll find uh, that God will always most satisfyingly answer your deepest prayers. Whatever he, whatever, however he responds to the, the way you pray for yourself, he will always most satisfyingly answer your deepest prayer. It's what Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Amen.